0: So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about user experience research or UX research. And this is a term that is pretty common in the tech industry. You hear it a lot across software and hardware. And to really help us understand this area, our guest today is Jonathan Karpfen, who also goes by Yoni Karpfen. And Yoni is lead experience researcher at Airbnb. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with Airbnb. It's one of those really amazingly successful Silicon Valley companies. And in fact, is one of those companies that give Silicon Valley the name that it has today. Prior to Airbnb, Yoni was principal UX researcher at LinkedIn and before that he was doing consumer insights at Walt Disney. So, so a lot of his experience has been in the research space and in terms of his educational background, Yoni has a bachelor's in philosophy and English literature and anthropology from McGill University and an MSc in political theory from London School of Economics. So, I hope you really enjoy today's discussion. As you'll see, Yoni shares a lot of great details, great insights, a number of resources and books. So, hope you enjoy today's discussion and without further ado, let's welcome Yoni. Hey, Yoni. Hi, how are you?
1: Good. How are you, Sonali?
0: Thank you so much for inviting me to the Airbnb office for this discussion because truly, I am so amazed. So uh, for our listeners, we are sitting in a camper right now. Yeah,
1: an Airstream camper, like one of those uh, kind of stainless steel looking uh, things that you might see being dragged behind a a pickup truck or something.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to be sharing the photograph of exactly where we are doing this on the website. But tell us a little bit about the Your office is so unique. It is a beautiful office. Describe the office for us a little bit. Sure.
1: I mean, I think you know, one way to explain what the office is like is is to explain what Airbnb is about, which is that, um, you know, it's really about feeling at home, feeling like familiar with uh, where you are, no matter where you are in the world, really feeling like you belong in that place, and I think that the the office here is really meant to capture that feeling. Um, I kind of think of the, our office as a cosmopolitan feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually multiple buildings that over you know the years have been built around this open area, which has now been turned into an inside atrium, mm-hmm. um, and so you really have this feeling of almost being in a city. It's very cosmopolitan. Um, but of course it's also private in that it's our office and so we get to work uh, in this environment where you have all these nooks and crannies and things where you can go off and feel kind of having your own time, but you also yeah. feel like you're almost a part of this living city. Oh my
0: God. So yes, it's what I was sharing with Yoni. You gave me a tour before we started the interview. And the thing which really stood out for me is that how you have these different rooms and each room represents an actual Airbnb listing. So like there was one which had all like a piano and a, like wooden covering everywhere. That room was right. amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that, I think that, that room is called Vienna. Okay. It's inspired by an actual listing uh, somewhere in Vienna. I don't know which one, but but our, our uh, facilities yeah. team yeah. you know, found it. And most of our conference rooms, as I understand, are actually inspired by um, and sometimes based almost to the furniture item on a particular wow. listing somewhere yeah. in the world. No,
0: it's really beautiful. I, I want to join Airbnb just to be able to work in each of these different rooms. So there was Santorini. I saw Santorini. Um, there was Dolores Park, which is in San Francisco. All right. So yeah, beautiful office. I don't know how you get any work done, but uh, <laughs> clearly you do because Airbnb is doing very well.
1: <laughs> it's nice to work in an office like this. So yeah. it, it helps get the work done. Actually,
0: Yeah. And now we're in a camper anyway. So yeah. So as you heard Yoni, we are going to be talking about UX research. Um, so before we dive deep into the details of the job itself, maybe you can tell us a little bit about just your journey so far, your career path so far and what led you to finally doing UX research at Airbnb.
1: Sure. Um, well, maybe the best way to explain that is is sort of I, I've over time I've developed a philosophy, and I've always tried to understand where that came from because you know kind of self analysis a little bit. You know, being a researcher, it's something that you tend to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and my philosophy is that everything is design. Design is about people, and people seek meaningful experiences. And I think that that's a pretty universally acceptable uh, idea. I think that that sort of philosophy for me originated as an undergraduate. I was actually okay. studying English literature and philosophy as my mm-hmm. majors, but I also uh, minored in archaeology. And archaeology, oh, yeah, archaeology is, is really about interpreting past lifeways through their material remnants, right? And today we tend to think of those remnants as artifacts that represent the culture. Obviously, someone at some point had to design those artifacts and had to Think about their use, their meaning, and they had actual meaning back in those cultures. And the job of archaeology is to try and reinterpret, reimagine what that meaning was. What interests me, working with design, is that it's the essentially the opposite of that, that process, which is we're we're living in the now. We're we're creating new things that are going to create meaning that doesn't exist yet. And so I, I think that, I, in a way, I've almost flipped from you know, but it's the same philosophy all the way through, which is that. You know, people seek meaningful experiences and we create things in order to manifest um, and embody those experiences.
0: That I I guess you were a very introspective undergrad because I, I don't think I had a philosophy around my career as such. So tell us a little bit about like after you developed this philosophy, how did you how did you choose these different? Steps? Sure.
1: I mean, I think. It really, for me, starts, and maybe I'm making the story up a little bit in retrospect, Mm -hmm. but for me, looking back on it, I think it started, as I said, sort of with that experience as an undergraduate, but then also in my graduate studies, I actually studied, I did a master's in political theory, Mm -hmm. which clearly has a lot to do with uh, my career today. Uh, In fact, not very much. But but I was studying... true
0: for most people. Yeah, (laughs)
1: Yeah, but it, it was a wonderful time. I actually did my master's in London. And it was a really interesting time because in North America at that time, cell phones existed, people had them, but not everyone had them. It wasn't something you had to have. And it was this was before smartphones before the iPhone. So this was when, you know, people were using phones here in North America to, to call, to just, you know, to have it in case of emergency or whatever. When I went to London, it was completely different. Everyone had a cell phone and oh, no really? one called. Yeah. No one called on their cell phone. They all texted, which to me was the weirdest thing.
0: Oh, really? Wow.
1: It was, a, it, so Cell I, phones
0: were there in London before North America?
1: Um, I, I don't know if they were there before, but the way that they were used was definitely much more advanced, you could say, than, um, than the way that we were using them here in North America. Uh, It depends on your definition of advanced, I suppose. But, um, you know, I would get on the bus and everyone would be heads down looking at their phone texting. And so it was this weird thing. So you had to have a cell phone, otherwise you basically didn't exist. (laughs) Um, so I got a cell phone and... It was a wonderful year but one of the things that happened during my year there was the london bombing and i don't know if oh, okay. if you or the listeners remember uh, the london bombing in 2005 mm-hmm. but it was i think it was this the, the next major terrorist event that happened after 9-11 mm-hmm. and if you compare how those two things were actually covered in the media 9-11 was covered mostly by professional broadcast networks with like broadcast type mm-hmm. videography whereas the london bombing was largely covered through user-generated content, through photos, videos that were sent by actual victims or witnesses of mm-hmm. the event. Mm-hmm. And it was a really meaningful moment, I think, in the way that news is covered. And that um, that along with sort of this cultural shock that I had moving there and seeing how cell phones are being used and how media is consumed really changed my focus from thinking about, you know, these sort of Uh, ivory tower, kind of political philosophy ideas about society and and how we can kind of shape uh, society to being more focused on how people live day to day and the different things that shape their day to day lives Mm -hmm. like technology and media and communications. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) that's the long-winded way to get to an answer to your question. When I moved back to Montreal, which is where I'm from, uh, after doing my master's, the first job I I got was at a, a cell phone content company. I see. Uh, and we were doing at the time, actually the biggest money makers were cell phone uh, ringtones and wallpapers.
0: Oh, really? so it was okay. the most yeah. basic stuff, yeah. you
1: know, it was like farting sounds, you know, <laughs> that would make like $2 million or something, oh you know,
0: really? um, yeah, <laughs> just the weirdest thing, you
1: know, but you know, fun, fun, delightful stuff. Yeah. Um, but from there all the way to, you know, games and applications and things like that. Um, but again, it was very, very early days. So that was my first real job after I finished my studies, and that got me into sort of product development, into uh, media, technology, all that kind of stuff. From there, I got very interested in the research that we were consuming. So we were actually buying research from sort of large firms, looking at mobile adoption trends, because at the time that was the big question it was mm-hmm. how big is mobile going to grow what's the size this of this was in 2000 um
0: 2006
1: 2006 2007 right. ish yeah so but got really interested in the research that we were that we were consuming and how that research was a part of the process and part of my job was using that research to you know embed it into our product development process but i wanted to get more involved with the actual research itself and understanding how that is done i wanted to i wanted to have the 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 tools in my toolkit. I wanted to have the you know um, the ability to actually understand where that information comes from because if you're using information to make decisions, it's really important that you know yeah. what that information really yeah. means. So I had actually already applied before I got that job. I had applied to some market research firms because that's one of the things you can do with a political theory degree. And so it ended up that my political theory background actually. Created this opportunity for me to go and get these research chops. I yeah, and I spent yeah. three years doing market research, mostly working for government clients and nonprofits, doing every kind of research from nationally representative surveys to focus groups with the public to one on one interviews with thought leaders, every kind of method, every kind of uh, problem that you're mm-hmm. trying to solve, which was great sort of training. And at the end of my three years doing that, I got this fantastic opportunity to go to Disney, which was exactly what I was looking for because I wanted to get back into product development. Okay. And, so, and that brought me um, there. And, um, and from there, I, I continued to, to focus, to, to work on what we call the client side of the industry. So there's like the vendor side, which is what I was doing at the market research firm where you're doing work for You're supplying clients. supplying
0: the research, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, um, moved back to the client side, which was what I had realized I needed to do um, mm-hmm. as soon as I had the, the sort of chops to do it. And from there, continued on down, down, down that path.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, this is really interesting. And I think uh, what I will probably want to touch upon a little, a little later in your discussion is that once we talk about what your job is, how your background in archeology span and political science, and I I think I saw philosophy and anthropology. So how have all of these helped you, if at all, in your uh, your current job? So yeah, so now maybe you can tell us a little bit about what is UX research. Actually, before you talk about the research piece, what is UX? Because I'm sure a lot of people, especially people outside of software, are probably not familiar with.
1: Sure, UX stands for user experience. Mm And you can think of it very broadly, or you can think of it more narrowly. It, different people uh, use those terms different ways. I would say broadly user experience is essentially what it sounds like. It's thinking about what is the experience of the user of your product. And that's very important because the in many of the products that we create today, um, the thing that the user is actually buying is an experience. And that is how they perceive the value of the product. Mm. And it's a differentiator. It's it's more and more being understood that that is actually a differentiator in terms of value. And you can create business value, differentiable business value based on your user experience, not only the the sort of pure function or problem that you're solving, but also how you solve that problem for the user.
0: Yeah, so can you help illustrate that definition maybe through Airbnb, right? So not whether it's good or bad, but what is user experience in the context of using Airbnb? And you can also talk about what is Airbnb.
1: Sure. Well, I guess I can start with what is Airbnb.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Airbnb is a company that started from a very humble idea, which was to connect travelers with locals who could uh, give them a place to stay. But it's evolved into a company that really thinks about how anyone can feel like they belong anywhere, um, to basically live like a local wherever you go. And Airbnb does that by connecting travelers with, again, with people who have places to stay experiences to share.
0: I'm a big fan. I love Airbnb. Yeah. And I think I've, I've heard some of the interviews with Brian Chesky and the founding team. It's mm-hmm. great, but yeah, carry on.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful company with a, a philosophy that no one could argue with. I think <laughs> I, I feel like, um,
0: it is a pretty novel idea, right? I think when it came out that you would live in a stranger's house, but it caught on.
1: Yeah. It, I think, I think there were, I imagine that there were many doubters in the early days. I wasn't here at that time, but it's definitely caught on and no one can argue with it at this point. Yeah. It's, it's working.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so tell us what is user experience in the context of Airbnb?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think that the, the more narrow definition you could think of as how do people experience the Airbnb product itself? So when you go on the Airbnb website, when you use the Airbnb applications on your phone, What is that experience? And so therefore we have to work back from there. So how do we design that? How do we design an application? How do we design a flow of pages or a series of experiences that you would have, whether it's Searching for a place to stay, or deciding um, which of those places you want to pick, or the, the flow that you go through when you are paying, or uh, the way that you are messaging the messaging system back and forth between a guest and a host. Mm-hmm. All of those things are designed. There are infinite number of decisions that have to be made along the way. And e- each of those things are part of the user experience design mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm.
0: So can you share an example of the kind of decision you might be making when you're designing these kind of things?
1: Sure, so so if you think about what I've, I've described Airbnb as connecting guests and hosts, travelers with the people that they're staying with, that means that we need to provide information to both sides about each other so that they can find the right, the right place to stay, Uh, learn a little bit about each other before they make a decision, maybe. And in order to do that, we need to also get that information. We need to collect information from people. And and there's a process behind that. A host who is listing their space needs to go through an entire process of giving their place a name, adding photos, Mm -hmm. describing what amenities they have, writing a description of their place and what they think is great about it and what they want to share about it uh, to to entice people to stay there and, and also to set the right expectations. So, all of those things need to be thought through in terms of what questions should we be asking hosts to answer? How do we present that information in a way that is digestible by guests? How do we um, make it both attractive and clear so that it's not just selling every single listing but actually making, empowering the guests to make uh, an informed decision about where they want to stay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's very, very helpful. And I think the other thing which I want to clarify sure. a little bit is so you mentioned that how UX UX in the context of Airbnb, one way of looking at it is just the website and your mobile applications. What are these different things that you're seeing? But if if I think about using Airbnb, there is the actual the website or the software, right? On your phone or on the on your desktop, whatever. But what about what about actually staying in an Airbnb hosted place. So is that considered a part of UX?
1: It's a great question. And thanks for asking it because it's, it's one of the things that I'm really excited about. It's actually a big part of my, my particular area of focus, okay. um, at Airbnb. So user researchers at Airbnb and, and at some other companies, the way that the team is structured is that we are embedded with different groups or, or teams within the company. I am actually embedded with a team called host quality. And our role is really to try and make sure that our hosts, who are essentially, they are the ones who are, who are providing the, off, the offline yeah. experience, as yeah. you're suggesting to the guests, that they are providing the best experience possible. And so there's many steps in us doing that. One is we need to try and understand our hosts. We need to understand what are their challenges? What are they trying to achieve? How are they solving specific problems? Is Airbnb helping them do those things? Or are they going somewhere else to try and solve those problems? How could Airbnb do a better job of helping them with that? And of course, the ultimate goal of that is to make sure that we're providing great experiences to guests. So we also need to understand the guests and what Mm -hmm. kind of experiences Mm -hmm. are they Mm -hmm. uh, looking for? How can we best deliver them or how can hosts best deliver them? So my job as a researcher uh, is to do various kinds of initiatives, various kinds of research Mm. to understand all of those things about our hosts. Right. No,
0: this is very, very helpful. So basically what you're saying is that as a UX researcher or as a user researcher, like he's called it, you're looking at the entire end to end experience, right? From the time that I think about that, okay, I may be interested in using an Airbnb listing, going to the website, then actually getting there and staying there and checking out the entire experience. And you want that to be as good as possible. All right. So, uh, so, Tell us a little bit about uh, maybe you can take an example of a project, uh, either like fictitious or a real project up to you and walk us through these different stages in the project just to illustrate the kind of activities you would engage in. And if you can weave in the, the other sort of functions that you work with, whether it's a product manager or whoever, just to sort of show how, how all of this comes together.
1: Sure, I think the the best example I can provide, simply because I've I've actually spoken about it several times, is actually one from project I did when I was at LinkedIn okay. before I was at Airbnb, and it's a project where we actually redesigned the entire uh, what we call the chooser flow, so the chooser page where where you um, choose as a LinkedIn user which premium subscription you want to buy. So maybe I should kind of backtrack for a moment that LinkedIn is a freemium service, so you have the free LinkedIn, which any any LinkedIn user would be familiar with. It's the the website, the apps, where you have your profile, you can see other people's profiles, you have company pages and jobs and all of these different things. But there's also more advanced features that LinkedIn offers across a range of different verticals. So products for salespeople, products for recruiters, products for advertisers, products for just business people of various stripes who just want to have more powerful tools. Hmm. And those products and services are sold in various different ways. And the chooser page is the one hub where you can come and see everything that's offered and decide which is the right thing for you. Mm -hmm. At the time when we started this project, the, the, the version of the chooser page that was live, that everyone saw when they went to LinkedIn, Um, had been there for a couple of years and there was a a team that had been working on optimizing that page through various experiments. So making small changes to the page Mm -hmm. and seeing what the outcomes were. And they had done a great job of that and, and, you know, given sort of what they had to work with, they had taken it, you know, if you imagine sort of a Cartesian plane, they had taken that design up and to the right, as far as they could take it, Um, our goal with the project that we undertook was to try and reach an entirely new sort of what I call a global optimum, right? So rather than focusing on trying to optimize the version that we already had, we said, Mm -hmm. let's see if we can come up with another version that brings us into an entirely new realm of performance in terms of this page. And
0: by performance you would mean the number of people who are actually converting from the free version to one of these paid versions.
1: Correct. Um, although we actually, added some additional goals which mm-hmm. were around making sure that people aren't just converting but finding the right product for so them. They're happy, like, that sticking was with it. the goal of the page. Of course from Link- from LinkedIn's perspective the goal is is to try and be profitable mm-hmm. and and offer value, but um, in order to do that effectively we needed to ensure that people were finding the right product otherwise mm-hmm. you get all kinds of mm-hmm. you know undesired outcomes. Uh, customer yeah, support issues get, yeah. people want a refund because they didn't get the thing they thought they were going to get right. whatever it may be right. you know we want to minimize those cases we want people to be happy with what they're getting so we started that process by saying okay let's let's completely step back and let's look at all the ways that it's possible to sell something in a digital format so we looked at cars and laptops and mobile games hmm. and Everything imaginable, mm-hmm. uh, and we found what we felt we we did a, as an exhaustive sort of review as we as we could, and we found what we felt were six different themes of okay. how it's possible to sell something online, and then we did a. Can big... you
0: share those themes?
1: Sure. So um, one theme was a single offering. So we only it's one price point, one product. One option. Hmm.
0: That's so all you, you can take do. It or leave it. There
1: may be multiple options, but yeah. we only present you with the one in this oh, okay. case, right? Okay. So maybe we have, and by the way, at the time there were over a dozen things that you could buy um, uh, on and, the LinkedIn, on, okay. yeah. uh, in the LinkedIn chooser page. And so the idea is not so much that you reduce the offerings, but more that you present only hmm. the one that you think is the right one. Okay. The next step up from that is you present multiple offerings, maybe different price points within a family. So mm-hmm. let's say we have different price points within the sales solutions family, mm-hmm. or we have different price points within the recruiting family. Mm-hmm. So you come to within that family and we show you only within that family the different price okay. points. The next step up from that is you know, basically the full menu. Like you can see everything, every family, you can pick within that which, which skew, SKU, SKU, mm-hmm. um, individual item you want and and then you can buy it from there then there was um build your own so you can kind of oh, pick like features a menu, like a buffet
0: kind of thing okay.
1: buffet menu like you know maybe some people may be familiar with if you're buying a laptop you can kind of customize the features right. and, yeah. and things you want so that was another option um there's also microtransactions. so if you're familiar with um for example cell phone games you can buy credits like in-game uh, purchases, in-app purchases. Oh,
0: okay. So just like for small things while you're using LinkedIn, you just pay on the fly, right?
1: Okay. You could buy credits or something That's like it. that. Yeah. Um, and, um, what was the sixth one?
0: That's all right. Yeah. It's just yeah. To, like give a little bit of an idea of the kind of things that you were exploring. Right. Okay.
1: So we had these, uh, we had, we, we found what we felt was an exhaustive set of all the ways that you could sell huh. something online. Huh. Then we brought the entire team together. This was, that was an exercise that we had done with myself, the researcher and the designer and the product manager. So just a smaller set of people. But then we brought together the whole team, including the marketing managers, Mm -hmm. the um, engineers, uh, both front end and back end um, engineers. We um, included some of the sort of broader stakeholders from across the company, because it's a, this page is responsible for selling all the products the company has, yeah, yeah. so we had to bring in people from all the diff who owned all those different verticals mm-hmm. so that they could be a part of this process and we presented these different themes and we said okay we're gonna brainstorm around these themes so we did an entire day of activities around coming up with what would LinkedIn do if we had these op- these different options available then what we did and this is where the research part really comes in is we tested, if you will, all of the, each of those six. And so we brought in people, uh, from all of the different verticals. So we hmm. brought in salespeople, recruiters, advertisers, business, like small external, business
0: outside of LinkedIn, right?
1: Outside yeah. of LinkedIn. Yeah. Right. So we recruited in these LinkedIn users hmm. who were, some of them had purchased, some of them had not yet purchased. So we, we kind of had this whole matrix of different kinds of people that we, we brought in to try and understand you know, how they would react to different versions of, of this page. And we looked at all six of those different versions and what we started to learn was that none of those versions was right. What we were able to extract though was what are the ingredients that make it right? So one version would highlight certain things. Mm -hmm. Another version would highlight certain other things. Mm -hmm. And what we ended up doing was mashing those things together in a way to bring together the best ingredients you know, and I actually think of this, you know, it's an analogy I like to make with researches. we're about trying to find ingredients and then the recipes for combining those ingredients
0: to produce yeah. the
1: right flavors yeah. and textures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you came up, I'm guessing you came up with like a seventh way of doing it, which was completely unique.
1: Right, which drew from all of those right, different right, things. Right,
0: right. Okay, yeah, so this is actually very, very helpful. So basically mm-hmm. what you said is you wanted to figure out what's the best way to present these various premium subscriptions. And so you started out with first collecting whatever you could find on the web, other industries, what they are doing. Then uh, you got got the team of various stakeholders together to brainstorm on all of these options. And then you actually interviewed people who would actually be using that page, whether it's um, recruiters or advertisers, various LinkedIn customers, to finally find those themes which should be part of that successful page. So as a UX researcher, can you share examples of the kind of tools that you would use to actually conduct this research, right? So, um, and actually one thing which I didn't ask you, which I should have before I asked you about this question was that if you were to describe what is UX research, how would you describe it?
1: So at the very basic level, UX research is a function to help various people around the company, make the right decisions to provide the best possible experience and achieve the outcomes that the company wants to achieve, Mm. um, through the design of our products.
0: And and so basically you, you are responsible for making sure that you collect the right information in the right quantity to help all of these various decision makers make the right decision, right?
1: Right, in the right quantity and, and using the right, methodologies right methodology to answer yeah. the different kinds of questions. Yeah,
0: yeah. so now if you can talk a little bit about these different methodologies, like what, what have you found effective? And common mistakes maybe that people tend to make us at least I found like, you know, when you're setting up a survey, for example, right, there's a, there's a right way of asking the same question and there's a wrong way. So, yeah.
1: Sure. Um, Well, the first thing I'll say is that experience research, which is what we call it here at Airbnb, is one branch of research, if you think of it more broadly. Um, There are many different ways and sort of contexts in which you want to be able to learn about your users, your customers. And so, you know, for me, experience research is part of a, a family of different inputs and, and ways that we learn. And so actually at Airbnb, the research team, which kind of all reports into one leader, is more than just experience research. It includes product specialists whose job is to work with both the product teams and the customer experience team so that the people are dealing day to day with customers who maybe have complaints or questions mm-hmm. um, to understand what is the feedback that we're getting back. It's very similar if you think of like voice of the customer is okay. one of the kinds of uh, departments that this would be similar to. Um, so there's that function in addition to the experience research function. So it's a, it's a way of getting insight from the feedback that we're already getting without doing anything in additional to what we're already doing, Mm -hmm. aside from taking the time and and thought to analyze it. Um, And we also have a survey uh, science team who is responsible for uh, basically best practices around survey research Mm -hmm. for Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So there's a family of different research expertise areas that that all come together to provide the insight around our users. experience research specifically is really focused on working very closely hand in hand with the product teams that are making the products day to day to everything from making sure that the strategy is aligned with where our users are at. Mm. So understanding how our users think, what their needs are, things like that, all the way to looking at whether a particular design that's trying to solve a very specific problem mm-hmm. is optimized for doing that. So. Mm. Is it clear? Can people find what they're looking for on the page? Does the, for example, a menu, does does the does the information architecture of the menu, which is what we call the structure, the hierarchy, the way in which different parts of the website are organized and presented to the user, does that all make sense? Can someone easily find the thing they're looking for?
0: Hmm. Okay, yeah, so uh, I think it will be very helpful if you can illustrate these with an example, right? So you mentioned that uh, as an experienced researcher, you're working hand in hand with the product team. To, for example, one one area where, where you would really help them is to understand what are actually the customers' needs and requirements. So, in the in the context of either Airbnb or LinkedIn, can you share the kind of data you would be sharing with the product team that hey, you know, I think hosts want this or guests want this?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm a big believer in, and and I think Airbnb uh, in particular is a, is a, it has made a real effort to uh, follow this, this approach, which is to treat research as, you know, we have to approach everything in the, in the right way for the right question. And so that might mean a survey or a quantitative approach in one way. It might mean collaborating with our data science team, which is a separate team, but, um, is the team that works on analyzing the behavioral data of actual things that users are doing out in the world. um, the data that we capture about what they're doing. Um, so those are two examples of quantitative data that we could be using anywhere from that all the way to speaking one-on-one with users either asking them to just talk about their lives asking them how they do things could be going and observing them could be visiting a host's home and actually seeing how they run their airbnb so how
0: does that work so like do you go and just like follow them around for a day
1: well, that is, that method that you just kind of alluded to there is, is called ethnography in the industry. Okay. Um, it, we certainly do it. Um, it's appropriate in very particular contexts, mm-hmm. um, but more often what we're doing is we're speaking with people in, in a more focused sense. So as opposed to just observing being fly on the wall and just kind of seeing what happens, we're, we're usually being a bit more targeted. We're asking more around questions around a particular theme mm-hmm. or around a particular topic. So for example, we may be doing a, a, a project around, suppose we are redesigning the way that we that we present review data on uh, the listing page of, of an Airbnb. We would wanna go and talk to hosts about how do they think about how they present their listing and what how do they think about the ways that reviews help them provide a, a, a good view, a realistic view as well of, of what they're providing? And then we would want to talk to guests about how do reviews um, okay. contribute to making yeah. a decision and yeah. we would look at that.
0: Have you found any uh, interesting insights like as you've gone through this so as a layman, for example, I could say that, Yeah, I'm sure a guest wants like a nice place to live in, right? But uh, now that you've gone through this process many times and you've actually spent the time to learn more about what these people really want, has there been interesting insights that you've learned?
1: I've never done a research project where we weren't surprised by something
0: Uh, that came
1: out of it. Uh, I mean, that's the point of doing the research, right? I I would say that the best research projects are ones where the, the things you learn are kind of obvious in a certain sense, you kind of think, oh, that makes sense, right? If, it, if, if you learn something and, you're, and you think, uh ah, it doesn't quite make sense to me, that's kind of weird,
0: okay.
1: probably worth looking into it a little bit more, mm-hmm. right? But I would also say at the same time that we've never done a project where, I've never done, been involved in a project where the outcome was um, so obvious that, there, that, we, so that we could have you, yeah. just, you know, not done it. So
0: can you share an instance?
1: So one uh, I suppose you could say surprising outcome that we have learned, uh, not, and again, it's, it's not entirely surprising, but it's mm-hmm. one of these things that when you realize just how true it is, it helps you to be much more deliberate and confident mm-hmm. in the way that you design the product. Um, and not just the product, but also the marketing and the messaging around it is, uh, that the more we've spoken with hosts and the more we've looked at different kinds of hosts. And in particular, some of our highest performing hosts, the ones who get the very, very best reviews, the ones who, if you look at what they're doing, you can really see that they're paying a lot of attention. They always respond really quickly. They're Mm -hmm. always very attentive. Um, When you talk to them about why they do it and what the benefits of it are, they talk about it in a way that's really distinct, which is that they're not doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. They're not doing it even necessarily because they need to, it's because of the the feeling that they get, the passion that they have about hosting people and sharing experiences with mm-hmm. people. And when you can understand something like that about your hosts, about, about the people who in Airbnb's world make Airbnb possible, right? Who are your the actual ones providing the experiences. When you can understand something like that, like that about them and understand that that's what makes them truly great, it helps you then to think about how do we now design the product so that everyone can feel that way and everyone can strive at least to provide that level mm-hmm. of hospitality and be driven in that way to do that. So some of these are fairly high level kind of learnings, but what they, the, the benefit of having those high level learnings is that you can take them and then apply them in a way that's very broad and kind of have a very a deep impact across yeah. the entire product.
0: No, that's a great example. And as you said, it is a high level learning, but I can see that I mean you can immediately apply it for example maybe I don't know how would how you would apply it in the product I would love to get ideas from you but messaging for sure right like how do you message it to hosts if you want to attract other similar high performing hosts instead of talking about money which I know a lot of companies do like a lot of the, the, the gig economy right that you try and make money off of these different things but now you're you're appealing to a slightly higher sense that come on and it can host someone it'll be a lot of fun all of that so um Uh, One thing which I also wanted to talk about is that, uh, you know, UX research, is this something which is very specific to the software industry or have you found this in other industries also?
1: Historically, I, as I understand, as I look at it, user experience research really comes out of a field that at the time was, has been called computer human interaction, which is about how humans and computers interact together. Mm. And that is related to other fields like human factors understanding the engineering considerations around human use of things like human cognitive ability, memory, ergonomics, human's physical abilities, all of these things are a part of design and having to understand humans in relation to the design of some interface.
0: So that's
1: the, that's like the genesis of user experience research as an industry or as a, as a specialty that specialty has gone in many different directions in different industries i think we have a lot of things in common with market research mm-hmm. we have things in common with people who are studying you know fashion trends and what are yeah. you know what are people going to be buying next year yeah. it's really about understanding the culture the society and how people interact I mean, it's a with... study
0: of humans would you say that yeah and how has your, actually, I want to get to that question later, but no, but this is really helpful because as you're saying, right, this is something, it's, it's a fundamental part of pretty much all industries, right? I mean, if, if you're interfacing with humans, you need to understand how they think and how they behave. Um, one thing which I wanted to ask you, right. So as you talked about these various examples, like the various insights that you, that you get, is there something like a, a good question and a bad question to make sure that you get the right insight that you're looking for?
1: I I think the answer is yes, but I don't necessarily think of it in terms of good and bad. I try to not focus on, you know, am I asking a bad question or a good question, but more how do I get, simply how do I get the information I need? Sometimes that's not even about asking a question. In fact, I would say I don't even think of it in terms of asking questions, because if you ask someone directly a question, they're going to give you the answer that they want to give you, or the answer that they think you want to get, or the answer that seems most socially acceptable in the context or that makes them appear the most desirable or appear that, you know, uh, my goal as a researcher is to get insight about our users. And so I try to get at that in different ways. I don't necessarily tell the person who's participating in research what it is that I'm trying to find out from them. So Mm -hmm. if I were to ask them a direct question that would immediately reveal my Goal and my intent, and and therefore kind of tip them off. So I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm. I'm. um, I don't go around being paranoid about that. I simply try and design methods that are going to allow me to learn through observation and not necessarily through direct. So you're more
0: of an observer. Would you say that?
1: Yeah, at at a high level, we obviously still do. I still do surveys Hmm. where we're asking people questions, Uh but. You don't necessarily take a response to one question hmm. and make that the you know use that to to develop an entire insight. You want them to take different angles to things. You might ask multiple questions, create a composite kind of view of the world. You may ask people closed-ended questions in a survey and then build up into an open-ended question so that they can maybe you ask them you know how many times a day do you do. X, Y, or Z. Just
0: come to do something completely different. Yeah.
1: Well, well, if you you might ask them how many times a day do you do X, Y, or Z, but then you follow that up and you say, oh, you know. What, what, what leads to you doing that? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, so you're, it's just as you would in a conversation, you're not just going to take someone's first answer, you're going to follow it up and really try and understand where they're coming from. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember when I was in business school, I, I had taken a class on market research and there's so much science behind it. So I remember this discussion we had on focus groups and how focus groups can be very ineffective because the people who sign up for focus groups usually tend to be people who are, you know, they're just like trying to make some money, quick money. So it's like $25 sign up for this focus group. They might not have any interest in what you're doing. So I'm sure there's a lot of this kind of stuff that goes into making sure that you're getting the right insights.
1: Focus groups seem to be like the ugly duckling of uh, a lot of research methodologies, at least from the perspective of, of non-researchers. There's mm. a, I always hear all of these uh, <laughs> reasons why focus groups are, are, are ineffective. I do focus groups when they're the right thing to do and I find them very effective in certain situations um, and in other situations it's just not the right thing to do. But you need to know what you're doing no matter what method you're using. When it comes to surveys, for example, a lot of people focus on asking the right questions. Actually, the most important thing in a survey before you ask any question is who are you asking that question of, which is survey mm-hmm. sampling methodology. Yeah. And you know, you could ask. It's it, Recently, I was watching coverage of you know, the, the political election that's happening oh, yeah. right now. And uh, it was uh, after the first debate between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I think some someone was saying that the, 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 the early online surveys are saying that Trump crushed it or something like that. And of course, one of the people on the broadcast made the point that, well, you have to ask yourself, who are the people who are actually answering those surveys right now? It's all about the sampling. It's all about making sure that that sample is representative. Yeah. So yeah. you could ask any question you want. If you're asking the wrong people, you're going to it's get gonna, a wrong yeah. view of the
0: world. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Cool. So uh, this was very, very helpful. Yoni. So now we'll get to some of your more day to day aspects. So on a typical day, if I were to run into you in the Airbnb office, apart from enjoying the lovely office, what else would I find <laughs> you working on?
1: Oh gosh. Um, Different things every day. That's a big part of what I love about my job. No two days are the same. Research projects tend to be, um, you know, we we do some that are quick, we do some that are longer term, but they consist of a lot of different things, whether it's, uh, frankly, a lot of the time is spent trying to understand what is the team that I'm working with trying to accomplish? What are the what are the questions that they really need answered and how would, what are some of the best ways that I can come up with as a researcher to help answer those questions. And so a lot of the work is really collaborative. It's about finding out what are other people thinking about, what are they trying to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, one thing you'd see me doing is spending a lot of time with my team, with the product manager, with the designers, with, um, uh, the engineers, with other collaborators like the marketing team, which, uh, you know, in many, at least sort of, I would say like in Silicon Valley tends to be a separate department from the product department. Um, but it is really important for us to, to work closely together because they're working on messaging and, and, right. and how we position the product, collaborating with everyone that I can think of to figure out how I can create the greatest value.
0: And so it, are you spending most of your time in, uh, in meetings or is, are you also someone who be working a lot on your own?
1: It's both. Obviously, no one loves spending time in meetings if it's not productive, but yeah. at the same time, meetings can be very important and very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say more so than meetings, it's collaborative time. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's sitting down with a designer and really thinking through, okay, let's look at the design together. Let's think about what, how might a user look at this? What are some questions that a user might have? What are some questions that we might have based on those you know, mm-hmm. questions the user would have that will help us understand how to best design um, for this, just, you know, to solve this particular problem.
0: And do you have to travel a lot? Like, let's say you want to talk to these various, um, you know, however you want to conduct like a focus group or an interview.
1: I definitely do travel. Researchers, uh, at least at Airbnb uh, and at LinkedIn as well, where I was before, um, are treated, I think, with a lot of flexibility and autonomy. So it's really up to the individual to decide how they think is, what they think needs to happen for them to provide the value that they're, they're expected to deliver. Often that does involve travel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't want to, a lot of our work is interviewing people, one, whether one-on-one or again, in a focus group kind of situation or what have you. We don't want to only be representing, you know, if we're talking to hosts, we don't yeah. only want to be representing San Francisco hosts. Yeah, we're yeah. based here, but that's, that's not the universe of, yeah. of our hosts. Yeah.
0: So you you guys are headquartered in San Francisco, but do you also do international trips? Then do you go to meet a host in India or in China or whatever? Absolutely, okay. yeah.
1: I personally haven't done that yet. I've only been here for about six months and I've been focusing a little bit more on trying to get sort of a, a foundation built around certain questions. But uh, very quickly, I'm gonna have to start thinking about probably how we can expand that to yeah. understand other markets. Other researchers who've been here longer have, gone all around the world. Um, literally, uh, you know, one or two researchers recently have literally circled the globe,
0: oh, really? um, wow.
1: doing research in all yeah. kinds of different places. I, mean, I would
0: imagine that's a great part of the job, right? If you enjoy it, cause you get to meet people from such different cultures and your job is to understand their context in that culture. Right?
1: One, one sort of way of approaching research that a lot of people ascribe to, uh, subscribe to is that you should focus on the extremes. Because if you can solve for both ends of sort of the spectrum, then the middle will take care of itself.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Well, you know, often people talk about that in terms of, uh, say, accessibility. So designing, making sure that a design works for people who are maybe visually impaired or have, for one reason or another, maybe unable to interact directly with a touch screen or something like that. If you can solve those problems, if your design is so robust that they can serve those people who don't have all of the same accessibility advantages that that some of us do then it's more likely to be a better design for everyone that's the Mm -hmm. philosophy and so going to some of these places where cultures are radically different from our own really helps us to understand just how wide a range of users and perspectives and cultures we really need to be solving for we're a global company we're solving for people of all different types
0: so i I guess in I guess what you would want is that you would design it in a, in a way that even if someone is, let's say in a very culturally different location, they're still able to understand it and get the same value out of it as someone over here. Yeah. Right. And for a UX researcher, how do you measure success?
1: I would say I can answer that question in different ways, but the, the, the simplest way that I would answer that is impact. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is literally the outcomes. I say this to every designer I work with actually is, my research is worth exactly nothing unless you as a designer and the product manager and the engineers make decisions that are informed by the research and probably means that you will do different, take different actions than you would otherwise have taken if it weren't for the research mm-hmm. or you take the same actions, you make the same decisions, but with a greater degree of confidence mm-hmm. and context. So, you know, I measure my value as a researcher by the impact that it has on the outcomes in the product development process and ultimately yeah. for our users.
0: That's a good way of putting it. And are there, are there any KPIs sort of metrics that typically you've seen that UXRs are measured against?
1: You know, I, I'm not sure that we have like hard concrete uh, measures for that. Um, I don't think that's unusual if you look across other sort of design functions, I think, are not typically measured by KPIs in, in mm-hmm. a formal sense. But again, I think I think we're measured by uh, the impact that we can have on the product. And that is also a function of the relationships that we form. And so quality of your relationships with your collaborators mm-hmm. and your stakeholders is going to be a very strong predictor and um, also a reflection of your ability to be influential, your ability to have an impact. And so all of those things are ways to look at and assess the performance of, of someone
0: who's That's a great point. doing yeah. research. You need to be able to not only have that relationship, but be able to influence the product manager, at least help them understand your point of view to the extent that they feel compelled that, no, I, I really need to take this into account into whatever I'm building with the design into whatever I'm designing.
1: Yeah. And it's my, it's, it, it, I, I, People have different philosophies on this. My philosophy is, uh, it is my job as a researcher to have a point of view. But it's also very important that it's clear, not only to me, but to everyone that I work with, that it's not just my point of view, that I'm representing our users. So I do all this stuff to try and collect insight and information from our users, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, whether it's very, very narrow and focused or very broad questions. But at the end of the day, I'm representing that in a concise, consolidated, synthesized way to people so that they can digest it quickly and easily see what the, the outcomes or the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the next steps would be based on that information. So it's very important that there's a level of trust and a level of credibility that, as a researcher, I maintain, even though... I also do have a point of view mm. and I am applying that in the process of doing that analysis. Right, right.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's not Yoni's point of view. It's more what you found in the research. Yeah. So uh, when you said that, generally, how does your output actually look? Like what physical manifestation does it take?
1: I am um, a big fan of frameworks. Okay. I think that helping people, helping our collaborators, helping the, pe- the designers and product managers and, and the, the various teams that we work with helping people uh, conceptualize and organize the world and our users and challenges that we face um, in new ways that are productive and that hopefully help us understand something, some kernel of truth about the world is is a very valuable way to help people solve a problem more quickly, more effectively, uh, more collaboratively, uh, more directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually, This wasn't your question, but it raises an interesting point, which is that I think traditionally there's been a feeling around research that uh, uh, not among researchers, but among the collaborators with research that, oh, you know, we just, you know, we don't have time. Like research is going to take time. We're going to have to. And then, you know, we're going to learn this stuff. Then we're going to have to make changes. We're going to we don't have time for all this. Like we need to ship in my experience. I would say. I've never been a part of a project where research has contributed ultimately to the time and effort required to arrive at the right and good conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, Research is always a way of accelerating, getting to where you need to be, because if you you don't know what you're doing, you'll go ahead and do that thing that you think is the right thing. And then you'll realize it's the wrong thing. And then you're deeper and further down the path than you want to be too soon. You, you want to actually know where you're going, have confidence and research can help with that. So you actually end up getting to the right solution, the most effective solution, um, the most probably profitable, hopefully profitable solution sooner with research.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I mean, you want as much data as you can in, in a good amount of time uh, to get to make the right decision. But when you say framework, so you organize your, your findings in a certain way, which are easy to digest. I, I was just trying to understand because I'm guessing you would learn so many different things, right? And they're, there are like these ambiguous things, like, like you mentioned that I, I am motivated by providing a great experience to the people who are coming to stay at my place. Right? So how do you structure all of this different?
1: Sure. Well, when I say framework, I'm thinking about visualizations, ways of simplifying thing, di- things, diagramming them, um, coming up with principles. So synthesizing things down to say three or four concepts, that are simple, but have a lot of weight and power behind them. You know, if you can say to someone, these are the four things you should think about. And then if you need to dig in deeper, here's all of the additional appendice, appendices, I if see. you will. So that's
0: where all your notes uh, go. Right. 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 Okay.
1: But my goal is really to simplify as much as possible, to bring it down to something very, very concise. Got it. With all of the backing of the okay. depth that's yeah. been put into it. So you're it.
0: doing basically some sort of pattern recognition as you're doing more and more research. And then you distill like those four or five things which come up for you.
1: Exactly. Okay. And it may not just be three or four or five things. Well, it may be, also yeah. be, uh, when I say framework, I mean understanding the relationships between those things. And that's where visualization becomes hmm. valuable. Like maybe, maybe maybe you think of it as a pyramid where there's like you know, a foundation, and then things built on top of that. And you can't get to the top without having each of the different layers. So you're building
0: a story almost, right? Right. First understand this, then this, and then this.
1: Story is a great word. I would say that the best research work is work that results in a story that that people can understand easily and quickly and that can be propagated and that people can adopt. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: All right. So uh, that's a good lead-in into w- what do you think are the most interesting aspects of uh, working as a UX researcher?
1: Well, uh, you know, we we just ta- talked about stories, so yeah. definitely that part is the most rewarding um, part for me um, because it means that I've gotten somewhere. It means <laughs> I've done something good, hopefully. I think... Again, coming back to this point that, you know, I judge myself based on impact. Mm -hmm. And so seeing impact, seeing outcomes, seeing real world, you know, numbers come back from, you know, a project that's been done and believing uh, that it it in fact made a difference um, is very rewarding. Uh, In fact, one thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that at least in the software world, Products are usually launched in an incremental way. And so you actually don't just release a whole new product or an entirely new version of something and just replace the old in one shot. You usually do what we call ramping it up or experiments or A B testing. There's different words for it. But some of my most rewarding experiences have been when we have a version that's been sort of researched and the way, you know, we've gone through a process that is the way that we would want to do it ideally. And then maybe we have another version. Um, that we're going to test alongside it that is sort of just an idea and we'll hasn't maybe it. been tested yeah. as much. And, I mean, we're coming into it with a big advantage yeah. on the research side, if you believe in it, which which obviously I do, but I've never seen it not sort of win the A-B test, um, but that's some of the most rewarding stuff is, is yeah. winning the A-B. If yes, you see your
0: insights actually being like validated in the market.
1: Right, and yeah. you see the behaviors. You can actually look at, okay, how are people behaving differently with this version of something than they're behaving with this other one and when it reflects what your expectations were that you know makes you, yeah. you know, makes yeah. you feel like you really did learn something happy
0: day yeah. and are there any aspects that you find challenging
1: absolutely i think the biggest cha- the most challenging thing about research is that uh, experienced research is about people and people are complicated and messy and sometimes fickle People are wonderful, but they can be difficult to work with. And I, and I mean mostly in a research context, you know, we're talking about, you know, having to recruit participants to come in for a research study. Maybe you've got, you know, you got a room full of your team sitting there waiting to hear from this person who's scheduled to come in for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And they're you've scheduled them and you've got them all there. And they, these are highly paid, very smart very, you know, effective people with a lot of work that they need to get done and you've got them committed to this time that they've set aside and your person doesn't, the (laughs) participant just doesn't show up. Didn't call you to say they weren't going to come. Nothing just doesn't show up. You know, it happens and you have to build in as a sort of safety. You have Mm -hmm. to assume that that's going to happen because you know it is going to happen. So you have to plan for it. But I would say that working with people uh especially you know in a in a research setting is some of the most challenging stuff but again of course that goes hand you in hand in hand with it yeah being some of the most rewarding pieces as so well. This,
0: so. this is a good great place for that question. So your background in anthropology and philosophy and all archaeology how has that helped you in what you're doing now? I mean Is that a typical background actually?
1: Well that's a good question. I think you know no, I, I don't think that there is really a typical background right now for experience research. And I think that that's partly because as a sort of formalized function, it's very new. So just as, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, uh, a digital designer was probably someone who was more self-taught, who kind of came. Maybe they had design experience. Maybe they went to design school, but they maybe didn't study digital design. They worked their way there. Um, similarly today, someone in experience research may have started out as uh, a psychology student or a sociology student. Maybe they were a design student uh, and are interested in understanding some of the research aspects of it. Maybe they're even coming from more of an engineering background, um, oh, really? but um, you know want to get more involved in in it what they, the things that they're engineering, you know, how they're delivering value. People come from all different backgrounds. Human-computer interaction is what some of these mm-hmm. programs are called these days in school, but but still, I mean, it's been a long time since I was in school, but, uh, and I know that since then there are more and more programs that are focused on this, but still, most of the people who, I've, who I see who are working today in user experience research um, didn't necessarily study experience research it, as like. their major um so people come from all different kinds of backgrounds my background as you pointed out is like literature mm-hmm. philosophy mm-hmm. anthropology arguably nothing to do with this job um but i think that some of the skills are you know understanding being open to how complex humans are understanding that a question about human behavior can't necessarily be answered with just a single one-off, you know, with just, here's the number, (laughs) right. Um, So having some appreciation for the complexity and the diversity of of people and culture, and also certainly having the curiosity. I mean, Mm. I would say that that's the very, probably the first Mm. thing that you would have to look for if you were kind of hiring someone as a researcher is they have to be curious, but also I think, you know, coming back to the literature piece, it's a sense of narrative. It's a sense of story you you need to have a story that makes sense Um, the best research is not uh, about facts just delivered but actually delivered in a way that tells a compelling Mm -hmm. and coherent story
0: yeah yeah no i I think uh, i mean at least again i'm speaking as a layman but from what you've described it sounds like you're studying humans and you're studying what makes them behave in certain ways what are their motivations and so political theory, archaeology, I mean, these are all, ultimately, they were, these were done by humans and why they behaved in these ways. So I'm sure it does something to your mind and just helping you think through these things. So, okay. And are there any aspects about this show that you just do not like?
1: I mean, I no. Uh, but there are certainly things, you know, as anyone would experience that, you know, are maybe frustrations or challenges. Um, I think the biggest thing is the the weight that you have to, you have to have a lot of patience between having an insight about your users and seeing the outcome that the company can bring into reality. Mm-hmm. I would say research inherently, I mean, research operates at different parts of the product development process from the very early strategic conceptual level, all the way through to looking at the details of a design that is nearly final and ready to be, you know, built and deployed. But in general, as a researcher, you're operating at the forefront, at the leading edge of the company's sort of innovation cycle. So it means that you, by definition, are going to have to wait about as long as anyone is going to wait to see an idea come to fruition. And so as rewarding, we've talked about what's rewarding about the job, as rewarding as it is to see those outcomes happen, you got to stick around for a while while to see that. And so I think that that's part of the job. I wouldn't say that I dislike, but it's definitely something that uh, you got to live with.
0: Right. right. No, that's a good point. Have you found UX researchers, maybe the new ones, make any common mistakes?
1: I think the biggest mistake is kind of sticking to a single methodology or a single approach to solving questions. There's no, you know, in research, everything is not a nail and you are not the hammer, right? Research is about understanding, as I've said, sort of the complexity and the subtleties of human beings and how they interact with things and and the fact that there's an infinite variability to how we can solve the problems that we're trying to solve. And so there's no one right solution. And there's no one right way to generate insight around what the solution should be. And so uh, often, I think, I don't know if it's so much a a factor, I don't know if experience is really the biggest factor or just sort of skills and perspective and and what people bring to research. But I think the best researchers are multi- Dimensional. Uh, they use multiple methods, and they look at a problem from various different angles in order to really try and, to understand it in its different dimensions.
0: And I'm sure you build that over time, I guess.
1: Absolutely, and I think what I would say to like young people who want to get into research is, you know, if you're coming to it, if your background is, you know, as mine is in, say, English literature uh, and philosophy, and it's more qualitative, and you're more of like a person who thinks in kind of, let's say, the softer terms of uh, understanding human experience, it's not an absolute requirement that you walk into the job on day one knowing how to do advanced statistical analysis um, to to complement your deep qualitative work. but. I would certainly hope that anyone who wants to do this job has an appetite, at least, for understanding that stuff. There's definitely an understanding that different people bring different strengths and skills to this job. And so it's not expected that any given person is going to be the very best in, say, the, the team on every single thing. Mm-hmm. Some people are better at statistical analysis and survey work and behavioral analysis, looking at again, basically looking at data, crunching data, working with advanced tools for that modeling it, all of these things. Statistics is a thing where you can kind of okay. be from one o- <laughs> yeah. 101 statistics all the way to like postdoc work. Yes, I mean, there's yeah. many different yeah. levels of statistics and all of them are important and valid in their own place. But some people are stronger in that. Some people are much stronger in speaking in, with, with users, interviewing them. Different people have different strengths.
0: Yeah, yeah that's helpful because uh, you want to sort of make sure that you explore these various methods and I'm sure over a period of time people gravitate towards figuring out what they're good at and also what to use in what situations so I just have a few more questions now more from the point of view of someone who might be interested in exploring this role so uh, I think one thing so to start out with in your opinion what kind of person do you think would really enjoy working as a UX researcher if you could list a couple of qualities
1: so as I said earlier I think the, the number one requirement is that the person be curious mm-hmm. and specifically curious about people, about how people interact with the products and the experiences in their lives. Um, so being curious, but, but I think if I have to think about what is the unique characteristic that I think researchers have that maybe other functions don't require as much, it's really an ability to see connections between concepts of different types. So basically seeing connections that other people have trouble seeing. And for research, what that means is being able to move back and forth between abstract thought and concrete thought, Mm -hmm. between uh, having a model Mm -hmm. or an understanding of people and their experiences and the very concrete and practical implications that that has for a specific design of a particular product that they're going to interact with in a given moment. Mm -hmm. So it's about being able to say, as we were discussing earlier, you know, oh, truly, great hosts are driven by their passion for hospitality and sharing that with people. What are the implications for a product design mm-hmm. that that suggests? Mm-hmm. Being able to take that very abstract high level kind of concept or, or, or thinking and and translate it into uh, something very, very particular that will then turn into a product yeah. is I think uh, the distinguishing feature of a researcher. Yeah.
0: And I know you can't share an example, but I, I just don't know how you would do it. So clearly, I'm not fit for a UX research job. But yeah, I, I that, that that does seem to be something because I, so. yeah,
1: and that's really where the storytelling skill also comes in, and that's another thing that I think is necessary because it's one thing for you as a researcher to see those connections. It's another thing for you to be able to convince other people that, that that is the way to think about that insight yeah. and that that insight implies something concrete. So being able to tell the story around, this is what we learned and this is what it means, but this is what the implication is for what we should do. That's That's really the key.
0: So, uh, let's say that I am someone completely new to this and I I hear your interview and and it sounds like a cool role. I want to do it. Is there a way to test if I have this ability?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I would say it depends on your situation. First of all, if you're already working at a company, and are lucky enough to have a research department at that company, then I would definitely encourage you to reach out to the researchers there. Researchers tend to be very friendly people. And we are, I think, generally very happy to share about our our work. So um, I think that that would be definitely the first thing I would suggest if you have the benefit of being in that situation. If you don't, then I think you know my former employer LinkedIn is another great way that you can reach out and learn about research from researchers. In my experience, um, and I've done this several times in my career, when I've wanted to learn about a new industry or a new role, I've just reached out messaging people mm-hmm. um, who have the kinds of jobs that I'm interested in find them on LinkedIn, send them a message, uh, often a really short, quick message like, Hey, uh, I see that you're doing this thing. I'm really curious about that. I'm looking to transition my career or looking to start my career. Uh, I'd love to spend 20 minutes, buy you a coffee and pick your brain. Mm-hmm. I would cool. say, you know, 50 to 75% of people will say yes to that. Proposition. No, that's,
0: that's good. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, a lot of people hesitate from sending these messages and a lot of times, a lot of times they don't get a response. So, Do you think that you did something special which made people respond to you?
1: I think the key with reaching out to people, uh, sort of out of the blue is be specific with what you're asking for. Don't tie it to any kind of particular outcome. In other words, don't talk about jobs. Uh Don't, don't ask for a job out (laughs) of the bat. Um, Treat it as an informational interview. In other words, I am curious and passionate about you as a person. I want to learn about you. You are doing something that's so interesting. Most people want to share about what they do. and, and, And if someone else finds it interesting, they are very, first of all, they're flattered by it. And secondly, they're usually very willing to share if they have the time and if they can do it. So I think simply being very clear about the fact that you are interested in them that uh, it's important to you and that you're going to make it easy for them and you're not asking for any particular thing besides some small amount of their time and their willingness to share. I've always had good responses with that. Okay. So, but I, but I would never lead with what you're trying to get out of, of it. it yeah. It's about your curiosity okay. about okay. them.
0: Okay. No, that's helpful. So going back to the qualities, so you mentioned curiosity and you mentioned the ability to take an abstract thought and convert it to concrete things that can actually be done. Is there anything else?
1: Um, you know, the other thing that I would add is, um, you know, if you're coming from the, if you're coming at this from the sort of qualitative end of things, if you're a designer or if you are a, a person with a background in, you know, literature or art, if you have, if you have a liberal arts background, I really think it's worth, no matter what you're going to do, but especially if you're interested in research, to have some training in statistics. Mm -hmm. Research is, at some point, you're going to have to deal with quantitative data, and the best researchers deal with both quantitative and qualitative data on a regular basis, at least understanding basic statistical properties of data, Mm -hmm. understanding how to read a slide with information. You know, If you're looking at a chart, what would you want to ask about that data? Understanding the right things around: where did that data come from? What does it represent? What you know? What's the statistical significance of it? Um, Those basic questions uh, at least are critical. And beyond that, you know, statistics. If you, if you, even if you don't think you're going to like it, you may develop a little bit more of an appreciation for it after you learn a little bit. And uh, it may be worth going even deeper, getting into more advanced statistics. That's
0: a good point. Yeah, yeah.
1: One other. Sort of exercise that I would that I would suggest is look at some of your favorite products mm. and just ask yourself how those products may have come into being. Um, what was the process that might have gone might have taken place in order mm. for the for that to have been the final solution? I guarantee you, it wasn't the first solution that yeah. people came up with. Yeah. This is why when you you know if you look at companies, people think like oh you know uh, like for example at LinkedIn, a lot of people when I worked at LinkedIn would say. Oh, how many people work at LinkedIn? And when I told them LinkedIn has 11,000 employees, they would kind of gawk at me and say, like, what? What are they doing? What are all these people doing? Well, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye, and it it requires a lot more work and thinking than you might expect. So take the time to really think about how might they approached it, how might that team have approached it otherwise, uh, and why did they end up doing it this
0: way? Right, no, that's good advice. Um, Are there any resources that you recommend to people who are interested to either learn more about the space or you know just learn more about people like you who are in the space?
1: Definitely interview prep. uh, I would say you know the, the usual things are Google it, look up user experience, look up user experience research. It goes by various names. Usability is another word that is used, although that kind of tends to be used for a very particular part of the process. Market research, all of these adjacent types of research are worth looking into to get a a robust view of what the industry is really about. I would definitely encourage people to look at blogs and kind of follow the breadcrumbs. You know, one blog will lead you to another. You'll start to see some common names of some of the sort of more famous thought leaders, and that should lead you to probably some of the books, and I actually have some yeah, favorite books you. that I can point out. Um, I think the the number one book that I think I would recommend, even for people who don't think they want to be researchers or designers, it may change your mind. You may decide you want to be a researcher <laughs> or a designer if you read The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman.
0: Oh yeah, I've heard of that one.
1: It's a very famous book. He Don Norman. He definitely was involved in a lot of the the development of technology that we know today. Mm -hmm. The book that he's most famous for is this design of everyday things, which he talks about everything from doorknobs to fridge interfaces, like how warm or cold is your fridge, to uh, stovetops, to kettles, to... It's it, it lives up to the name. It's the design Not of everyday, everyday things, things, but yeah. it, I think that his working title for the, for the book was actually the psychology of everyday things. And so it's really about understanding how people interact with objects in their lives and mm-hmm. how sometimes the wrong design can lead to absurd outcomes and getting it right can really make a big difference. Mm-hmm. So that's a very inspirational book that I think anyone who's interested in this should read. Don't Make Me Think is a book by Steve Krug. I think that's how you say his name. Um, how do you spell it? Steve K-R-U-G.
0: K-R-U-G. Which is R-U-G. his last name. Yeah.
1: It's a short book. It's very visual, very practical book about web design primarily because I think it was written sort of more in the sort of web era than mm-hmm. the app era, but definitely worth checking out. It'll kind of give you the shortcut, the quick quick and dirty view of what this industry is really all about. If you're starting out and you're trying to learn how to, how to do a project around user experience, and i Anyone who wants to can, can do a little one on their own. It mm-hmm. doesn't take it, it. I, you know, maybe this is, you know, the wrong message to send, but it's not rocket science. Yeah. I mean, you can do this stuff, but anyway, pick up, uh, observing the user experience by Mike Kuniavsky. It's, it's not a small book, but, um, it's kind of a step-by-step intro primer, uh, almost like a textbook kind of approach to doing this kind of stuff. Um, the elements of user experience by Jesse James Garrett. um, is a great again very short book really worth reading that outlines sort of a framework of how design creates experiences and what are the different elements uh, as the as the name of the book suggests what are the elements of the user experience Uh, i'm also a big fan of designing for the digital age by kim goodwin again it's a fairly large book but it's one of these sort of step-by-step project kind of how to do this kind of stuff that's really one of my favorites, really worth picking up. If you're also trying to, if you want to get inspired about how to even move beyond design research into a broader realm, which which design research is a part of called design strategy, hmm. which is really about thinking not just about doing research, but then applying it. I would pick up 101 Design Methods by Vijay Kumar. It's, as the title suggests, 101 <laughs> Methods for Doing Design thinking, which includes research, but also how to brainstorm with the team, how to take a project through the different phases of sort of conceptualizing, doing more abstract work, bringing that into a more concrete stage, and Mm -hmm. then actually delivering a final solution. And then lastly, I would say, We're talking about essentially people's psychology here, right? That's really what this is all about. So understanding how people's minds work, but also how their emotions work is really important. Don Norman has written about emotional design. But I would also, one of my favorites is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Talks about different modes that we use as humans to make decisions and to assess problems. He's a Nobel Prize winning cognitive scientist, I think is maybe how he Uh, Presents himself, and lastly, the Art of Long View by Peter Schwartz. Oh, okay, yeah, Yeah. is a book about um, strategic forecasting, which I think is another sort of interesting filter that you could think about this work through. That filter, which is how do you think about scenarios and how do you plan around different scenarios when you don't actually have perfect knowledge about the future? So, how do you future-proof your design in an uncertain kind of world?
0: Thank you so much. That's a great list. I'm gonna like. Go back home and download them on my Kindle because all of them look very interesting. Um, in, in terms of the the application process, first of all, how do you do you apply with a, like your typical resume and cover letter, or are there other things also?
1: I think it depends what point you're at in your career. If you're just starting out and you don't have, say, like a portfolio of either design work or research work, give you submit your your resume or your LinkedIn profile. I think these days cover letters, you know, are sometimes not even I've required. questioned
0: it, but it's, it's, it, I've found mixed opinions on Sure.
1: The... But I mean, I think that, you know, again, you know, having worked at LinkedIn, uh, I have to say that uh, the best way to get a job these days is not by submitting your application directly and waiting to hear back. Mm. It's by reaching out to people at the company, identify, start by identifying the kind of work you want to do and the kinds of companies, most importantly, that you are inspired by and that you want to work at. Find a company that has a mission that you are passionate about. That's the most important thing because you're gonna be spending every day of your life, especially as a researcher, trying to understand how to achieve that mission and deliver value to the users. So you really need to be passionate about what you're doing. Find companies you're passionate about and then reach out to people who work at those companies. And it doesn't have to be the researchers if that's what you wanna do. It could be the designers, it could be product managers, it could be, you know, depending on, on the individual, a lot of executives are willing to sort of have informational interviews with people if they're if they present themselves well. But, you know, don't be shy. Reach out and start these conversations. That's how you're going to eventually most likely get the opportunities to have interviews. Uh, once you get an interview, many of these jobs, whether it's in design or research, often involve a presentation. So mm. you're, you know, if you're more junior and you haven't maybe had professional work to show, you may be asked to show other work that you've done, either as a student or uh, as on the side, I would definitely encourage anyone who wants to work in any design related field to have some kind of portfolio, some way of showing their work in a a visual way, something that can showcase what you've done. Hmm. Okay.
0: So you, at least you want to do your own projects on the side to start developing that portfolio.
1: Yeah. And they don't have to be big.
0: Yeah. Okay. And did you have a portfolio? Can we get the link to your portfolio? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't have a public portfolio. Okay. Um, I have, you know, I would say, you know, that the trick, the tricky part about being a researcher is that a lot of the stuff you work on is internal kind of knowledge yeah. and usually proprietary. Um, so having a public portfolio is different from a designer maybe who's designed something that every, the world can, can see. see. Yeah. Um, but researchers are an integral part of that design. And so you can show the the projects that you've been a part of, you can uh, showcase the outcomes of the work that you've done, and then you can speak to how you contributed to it. Yeah.
0: And you brought up a very interesting point, which is that you want to identify the companies that you want to work for. So let's say you want to work as a UX researcher. Is there some discrepancy in terms of the relative strategic importance of that function? By a company?
1: That's a great question, definitely. Mm-hmm. There there are different companies view research in different ways, It's or it's structured in different ways within the organization, and given different value uh, depending on how the company approaches it. Airbnb is a, a very design-led organization. It's two of the founders of the company were trained as designers and come very much from that mindset. And so uh, here, you know, design and research really has a lot of respect and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a big part of the process. Other companies approach it differently. It's not to say that they don't support it or that it's not viewed as valuable. I would go, I mean, if you're young and, or, or new to this, I would go somewhere that you think you're going to learn the most. So um, whether that means going somewhere that really funds research or whether it means going somewhere that really treats research in a very rigorous way. You and know, how would
0: you find that out?
1: Again I think you, you research, reach, out pe- well, yeah. first, re- reach out to the people well Google at first but then reach out to the people that you can find you know do some searching especially yeah. on LinkedIn find the individuals at that company who work uh, in research or related fields mm-hmm. you know design is one of the first place to start if you're looking beyond just straight up researchers and talk to them ask them questions about you know how research is a part of the process mm-hmm. um, you'll figure it out quickly ask about how research is, uh, organized, like literally, what is the structure? What does research report up to? Does the research function report up to the product lead or the marketing lead? The, is the most senior person in the research department, uh, what level are they at? It, is there a director of research, a VP of research, or is the most senior person in research an individual researcher?
0: That'll tell you, that's going yeah. to tell you
1: a lot about how they think about the value of it. That's a
0: good, yeah, yeah. No, that that's really helpful because a lot of times it's like, you know you want to assess the importance, but you don't know what questions to ask. That's helpful. All right. Thank you so much, Ani. This was really, really helpful. Is there any other, any area that you think we didn't cover or any other advice you'd like to share with listeners?
1: No, I mean thank you so much for having me on and you know it's as a researcher it's it's not often the case that we get asked all these questions we're usually usually the Tables ones doing flipped. the 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 asking so I I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. No,
0: definitely. Thank you so much. This was great. You shared a lot of I think what was really helpful for me in this interview is that you not only shared like actual insights in terms of what this job is but also your own thought process you know why you chose one thing over another in the background and history which i'm sure will be helpful for listeners. so thank you thank you okay All right, so that was Yoni on user experience research. I really hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and found it helpful. And of course, if you have any questions at all for Yoni or for me, you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. If you enjoyed today's discussion as much as I did, you should subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by checking out our website at www.learneducatediscover.com where you'll find links to iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. so You can subscribe to the podcast using your podcast player of choice. And of course, over there, you'll also find a list of all the previous episodes as well as links to other useful resources. You can follow us on Twitter at LED underscore curator and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learn, educate, discover. Again, please feel free to leave us a message, tweet at us with your thoughts, your questions, your feedback, anything. I really look forward to hearing from you. All right, so that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time and until the next one, bye-bye.